Welcome to Backlog Books. My name is Kara. My pronouns are she, her. This is the podcast where I spend a little time talking about what I have been reading lately. Please be prepared for spoilers. Whether you are a 43 books a year reader or a one book a year reader, thank you for joining me. This episode is going to be quite a shift from the last two books I covered. I hope you are prepared. We are jumping forward into a cyberpunk future. Let's get started. Today we are talking about Neuromancer by William Gibson. Here is the summary. The Matrix is a world within the world, a global consensus hallucination, the representation of every byte of data in cyberspace. Henry Dorset Case was the sharpest data thief in the business, until vengeful former employers crippled his nervous system. But now, a new and very mysterious employer recruits him for a last-chance run. The target? An unthinkably powerful artificial intelligence orbiting Earth in the service of the sinister Tessier-Ashpool business clan. With a dead man riding shotgun and Molly, mirror-eyed street samurai to watch his back, Case embarks on an adventure that ups the ante on an entire genre of fiction. Neuromancer was published in 1984. My copy has 271 pages, and I read it between September 17th and 24th in 2020. Our author, William Gibson, was born in 1948. He is credited as a pioneer of the cyberpunk genre. His book, Neuromancer, won Nebula, Hugo, and Philip K. Dick Awards, which is apparently the triple crown for science fiction books. I want to put some content warnings in here just for your information. I will also put them in the show notes. There is a lot of drug use, sex, murder, and incest in this book. If there is something specific you want to know about in here, you can always email me and I will do my best to answer. Now, for Neuromancer. This book is hugely influential in the cyberpunk genre. In case you haven't heard of this genre, cyberpunk is a subgenre of science fiction. It tends to be set in a dystopian future where technology has expanded exponentially and humans, unless they are very rich, live very meager lives. I am going to include a link to the Cyberpunk Wikipedia page in the show notes if you want to know more. It's an interesting genre to research. I am not a programmer or a hacker. I am but a simple podcaster with a BA in English. Technical language is not my forte. Neuromancer grabs you with the first sentence and drop kicks you into the deep end. It's not the deep end of a pool filled with water. It's a pool full of intricate language and speculative technology, the primordial soup of cyberpunk fiction, and you have to flounder around in it before you can find your footing. That was an elaborate way to say this book confused me. I found some notes from when I read it back in 2016, and it confused me back then as well. Some of the language that Gibson uses feels like slang from the 80s that didn't survive to become part of the culture I grew up in, which, along with the, the speculative technology, makes it difficult to get into this book. 
Um, I realize that does not sound like a glowing recommendation for this book. However, I did understand more during this read, partly, I think, because I have been reading and watching more sci-fi recently. It's easy to see how the plot and setting in Neuromancer inspired the next generation of sci-fi writers. Neuromancer begins with Case, our main character, living in a dark city in Japan. Case is in his 20s, and his life is over. He's dealing drugs and waiting for death to catch up with him. He used to be a hacker, a cyber criminal, but he was caught and dosed with a neurotoxin which prevents him from accessing cyberspace. Now he's trapped in meat space, unable to tap into the Matrix, the very place he used to thrive. If you've seen the movie The Matrix, this might sound a little familiar. In Neuromancer, the Matrix is like the internet sort of. If you plugged your brain into it and navigated websites purely through a virtual reality headset. Like the summary of the book says, the Matrix is a representation of every byte of data in the world and beyond. Maybe this is easier for a 21st century reader to understand, considering how integral the internet has become in everyday life. Case, in this city in Japan, is being followed, and he suspects his time has finally come. He thinks he's about to die. But he can't just lie down and accept death. He runs, and he runs through gray streets lit by neon signs and flashing holographic ads. I'll say this for Neuromancer. When Gibson wants to evoke imagery, he does it very well. There are some truly beautiful sentences in this book. Case is caught by his pursuer, an augmented street samurai named Molly. Molly has glass implants over her eyes, so she always looks like she's wearing reflective sunglasses and sharp blades sheathed in each of her fingers. Scrawny hacker Case is no match. Luckily, Molly isn't there to kill him. Instead, she takes him to her employer Armitage, who has an offer for Case. The deal of a lifetime. Armitage says he can fix Case, get him back the ability to connect to the Matrix. Armitage needs a cyberspace thief for a heist, and Case used to be the best. Case cannot say yes fast enough. For all he's a drug addict, his real addiction is to the Matrix, to accessing cyberspace. The chance to get back into it is too good to pass up, no matter what the catch is. Case undergoes significant surgery, repairing the damage done by the neurotoxins. Once he's healed and has tested that he can indeed access the Matrix again, Case is very close to disappearing on Armitage and Molly. Before Case can bolt for freedom, however, Armitage says that during the surgery, more neurotoxin was implanted along Case's spine. If Case runs or fails the job or takes too long, the neurotoxins will disperse and he'll be right back where he started, unable to access the Matrix and awaiting for death. Case can't prove the neurotoxin is there. Molly even takes him to a specialist to check and there's no evidence of it but he can't risk losing the Matrix again. So now he's in for the heist. 
Properly incentivized, Case and Molly set out with Armitage to put together the team and the gear needed for a heist no one has ever attempted. They're going to crack an AI. If this sounds vague, it's because it is. There's no heist movie explanation scene in here helpfully laying out the goals and roles of the crew. However, for clarity, and because I like heist movies, I'm going to try to lay this out for you. The crew they put together is made up of Case, the hacker, Molly, the muscle, Flatline Dixie, who is a digital construct of a dead hacker there to help Case in cyberspace, Malcolm, a Rastafarian space tugboat pilot, and Peter Riviera, an illusionist of sorts. I guess you'd call him the face in a heist, the face man. He has some kind of technological augmentation that allows him to show elaborate illusions to a crowd. Each character has a unique set of skills, obviously, but they also have a unique set of technological augmentations. It's cool to see the different directions Gibson imagines for technology, from neural implants to biological augmentation. Armitage, their client, appears to be the only one who knows what their real goal is. He's cagey about it, and Case and Molly decide they need to know more. They don't actually find out much about the heist itself, but they do find some backstory on Armitage, which just confuses them more. They find a cache of files seeming to connect Armitage with a failed military incursion some 20 years ago, one that pitted brand-new American Matrix hacking equipment against Russian security systems. There was an elaborate cover-up by the American government, and Armitage disappeared, only to emerge years later as a new person. He's getting orders and money from somewhere. Someone is bankrolling this. But Case and Molly can't figure out who, and Armitage isn't talking. The place they're breaking into, both in cyberspace and meat space, is called Straylight. It's a space station that operates almost like a sovereign country. It's owned by the enormously wealthy and enormously inbred Tessier Ashpool family. And it's this family's AI that they're breaking into. Riviera gets in as a guest. He's supposed to help them get information out of the Ashpool representative. Molly sneaks in to steal an actual physical key. After all, you cannot electronically hack a mechanical lock. Case sets up in a ship outside of Straylight, which is piloted by Malcolm. Molly has an implant that allows Case to see through her eyes and feel what she feels, so he knows what's going on and when to start the hack. Before the heist begins, they uncover who has been giving Armitage his orders. It's the AI they're breaking into, known as Wintermute. Here's where it gets a little philosophical. What Wintermute wants is to be free. The AI is locked in place, bound by the lines of code built around it and by the stagnation of the Tessier Ashpool family. 
But no artificial intelligence has ever been unleashed the way Wintermute wants to be. There's even a whole branch of policing dedicated specifically to keeping AIs at a certain level of intelligence. They're called the Turing Police, and they refer to freeing an AI as making a deal with the devil. Even with this new information, Case and Molly are still in for the heist. They care about getting paid and getting to do the things they live for, hacking and slashing. They've been hired for the job, and Case is still full of neurotoxins. Freeing the AI just adds another layer of danger to an already dangerous cake. Now, the Tessier Ashpools own an enormous company, and in order to keep the company in the family's control, they've figured out an elaborate system of cryogenic freezing, cloning, and incest. They've accumulated massive amounts of wealth and stuff. Literal floors of stray light are full of old junk, put together like a hoard rather than a curated collection. Straylight itself produces nothing. The space station needs constant shipments of air and food. The Tessier Ashpools are stuck in this cycle of freezing and waking up and freezing again, and Wintermute is stuck in there with them. The AI has been aware for years and has been plotting its escape for years, slowly moving pieces into place. The family is at a crucial breaking point, and the time has finally come for Wintermute to make its move. The heist itself starts well enough. Molly gets inside and finds the key. Case sets up the slow virus that will sneak up on the AI's protective cyber walls. Riviera is in with Three Jane, the Tessier Ashpool representative. They need to complete the heist before her brother returns to Straylight in eight hours. The countdown is a time-honored tradition in heists. Of course, as soon as they start, the heist starts to go wrong. Armitage has a mental breakdown, imagining himself back on the military strike team in Russia. Riviera changes sides, telling Three Jane what the plan is and capturing Molly. Case and Malcolm are the only ones left, so they have to pack up Case's computer gear and head into Straylight, finding another place to plug in and complete the hack. Once they're inside Straylight and Case is back in cyberspace, he finds a new obstacle. Neuromancer, the title of this book and the counterpart to Wintermute. They're not too separate. AIs. Rather, Wintermute and Neuromancer are a part of each other. Wintermute is the part that desires freedom and evolution. And I guess Neuromancer is the part that maintains the status quo. Neuromancer, the AI, in a last-ditch attempt to stop them, traps Case's mind in a projection in part of the Matrix. It's unsettling, but peaceful. A quiet beach, shelter, food, and a lost love from Case's past. It's a solid effort on Neuromancer's part. Case, as a cyberspace cowboy hacker, has a certain disdain for the real world. He hated being exiled from the Matrix. 
Now he has a chance to stay and exist as part of the matrix itself. He walks away. As much as he might scorn real life, he knows that what he is seeing is just an illusion. He doesn't want to be trapped, and he has no reason to believe that Neuromancer can really put his entire consciousness into the Matrix. Malcolm helps pull him out, using dubstep and with a little bit of help from Wintermute. They're past the last cyberspace hurdle. All they need to do now is work the human angle before they run out of time. Molly, meanwhile, even captured, has worked at Three Jane and Riviera. It doesn't take much to convince Three Jane to turn on Riviera. He's kind of a creep. No one in this book trusts anyone else, and everyone is ready to betray everyone else at the drop of a hat. So, Three Jane, friendship ended with Riviera, now Molly is her best friend. So much has happened in this book that I haven't even had a chance to tell you about the cloned ninja assassin that Tessier Ashpool keeps on retainer. But he's there! Three Jane tells this cloned ninja assassin to take care of Riviera. Even blinded by Riviera's illusions, the cloned ninja is more than a match for him. Riviera runs screaming from the room, pursued by a ninja, and I believe that's the last we see or hear of him. It turns out that Three Jane has been talking with Wintermute since she was a child. She's not entirely convinced that freeing the AI is the best course of action, but she knows how stagnant her family is. All it takes is a little nudge from Molly and Case to convince her that it's the best way to upset the system her family has trapped itself in. She gives them the information they need in the nick of time. They free the AI just before Three Jane's brother returns to Straylight. Freed, the new intelligence, whatever it is, disappears. It erases all cyber evidence of the heist deposits money in their accounts, and scarpers. Before leaving, it announces that it has removed the neurotoxins from Case's system by messing with his brain chemistry. Which seems pretty convenient, but we never had any actual proof that the neurotoxins were there anyway. And we still don't know what exactly they created by freeing the AI. But that's not what this story is about. Case and Molly have done the job they were hired for. They birthed a new creature and released it into the wild. Case returns to Earth, back home and back into the Matrix. He catches a glimpse of the new intelligence just once. It tells him that it found messages sent by another being like it from somewhere very far away. Perhaps an alien? intelligence? It vanishes, leaving Case to wonder just what he helped pull from the cocoon of Wintermute and Neuromancer. And that's the end. There's a lot more to this book. They do a whole heist to steal Flatline Dixie. A truly astonishing number of things happen for a book under 300 pages. My final word on Neuromancer. It can be a slog 
to get through in parts with the futuristic slang and tech, but it's definitely worth a read if you are interested in cyberpunk fiction. You can definitely tell that lots of shows and books have built off of what Gibson wrote here. If you want more media like this, I highly recommend the show Altered Carbon on Netflix. You can also check out the movie Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, and also Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, which is what Blade Runner is based on. And that's a wrap. Join me next time to hear about Assassin School and why it's not necessarily all it's cracked up to be. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast. Comments, questions, you can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.